0: Throughout this episode of Morally Indefensible, you'll hear dramatic recreations of the correspondence between Joe McGinnis and Jeffrey MacDonald, taken from letters and transcripts of tapes. It was 1982, three years after Dr. Jeffrey MacDonald was convicted of murdering his family and sent to prison. Writer Joe McGinnis was racing to finish his much-anticipated book about the case, and it wasn't going very well.
1: Dear Jeff, the crunch of all crunches is upon me. The next four weeks will be hellish.
0: While Joe was searching for the perfect ending for his book, his publisher was losing patience. There would be no more money until Joe delivered. Joe was
1: going into debt. Jeff, one of the reasons it's taking so long is that I am in the position of trying to catch up with a story which continues to unfold. Meanwhile, from his prison cell, Jeff was
0: writing to Joe with some important updates about his case. Joe, I think the enclosed is incredible news. I think it may turn out to be critical. According to Jeff, his new legal team had discovered some startling new evidence about the hippies Jeff said attacked him and his family. It does, for the first time, begin to build a viable case against the real intruders. I think I can still fight back. And Joe seemed to
1: agree. Jeff, I tell people it's my guess that you will receive a new trial. Needless to say, a new trial would be the best possible thing for the book because of all the publicity it would generate. Depending on timing, I might have to work in a new ending.
0: The idea that Joe's book would end with the real killers gave Jeff hope. This new book would announce to the world that Jeffrey McDonald was wrongfully convicted. Jeff would get his life back. So to get Joe everything he needed, Jeff asked his new attorney, Brian O'Neill, to give him a call.
2: He just thought Joe McGinnis was the cat's pajamas. And hes uh, I remember re- really raving about him. He's looking out, he's my pal, and all that. I'm Brian O'Neill. I'm the lawyer. So I did call him. Probably spoke for an hour and a half on the phone. I'm on something. Got to trust my gut on these things. He was very nice, very ingratiating guy. By somebody other than Jeff McDonald. And of course, uh, he's a journalist. You could really bullshit with the best of them. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Good to meet you. There was just something about our exchange. I didn't trust him.
3: McDonald told military police the murderers were three men and a woman who invaded his family's quarters. She's saying, Yes, it is groovy, kill the pigs. I had just seen a woman two blocks away. Dr. Jeffrey McDonald was found guilty today of murdering his wife and two children. Not to mention the fact that the uh, perpetrators of the crime are still free. Absolutely, there are at least four people running around who have uh, murdered three people. Three
1: consecutive life sentences. Total strangers can see within five minutes that you did not receive a fair trial.
3: I've just sort of been getting a whole sense of positive vibes about the appeal. I think that this is the stage now that they are going to
1: reverse this. The truth I don't have to convince you that you ought to be out, but what do your lawyers say?
2: Life with
1: I'm Mark
0: Smerling, and this is Morally Indefensible.
3: Chapter 4.
0: The Confessions. When lawyer Brian O'Neill first took on Jeffrey McDonald's appeal, Jeff was running out of options. To get a new trial, he needed to introduce new evidence. So Brian hired a private detective.
4: Ray
2: Shudlick was, uh, I think he was from Queens, spoke like he was from Queens, looked like he was from Queens, cigarette smoke, like a halo. Really smart. Not fancy smart but really could figure things out. He was really a very good investigator.
5: I had some trepidation. First of all, I believed almost intently that Dr. McDonald was guilty of these homicides.
0: Shedlick was a retired NYPD detective. He died in 1989, but we've got this interview from decades ago. And like almost everybody back then, he'd heard about the McDonald murders.
5: I told Brian O'Neill and I told Dr. McDonald ultimately that I would conduct his investigation Independently, no matter where the chips fell, I would tell them exactly what I had found. So it is from that point that I've commenced my investigation into the McDonald homicides.
0: Jeff described his attackers as two white men, a black man, and a blonde woman in a floppy hat. Shedlick wanted to know if anyone else had seen those people that night. So he placed an ad in a local newspaper.
5: And it wasn't very long after that that I began to receive telephone calls.
0: A lot of calls.
1: His eyes looked a little hollow, slightly dazed. He said he was partly responsible for the McDonald's lands.
2: He confessed that he had murdered people. He was asking for God's forgiveness.
0: And one name kept popping up.
5: Greg Mitchell. Gregory Mitchell. Greg Mitchell said, let's get on with it. Then they took off in the direction of Fort Bragg.
0: Over the years, even more people came forward with stories of a man confessing to murder.
6: This was a long time ago, but it was something you would remember because of the situation and what happened with the murders.
0: That's Christine Griffin. In the early 80s, she and her husband John were at their lake house in South Carolina trying to install a new high-end computer system.
4: And computers you know, weren't the size you briefcase, and they were the size of a Volkswagen and took a lot more power. So we had to find somebody, an electrician type, that would, that would come in and jack up the power for it.
0: The Griffins heard about an electrician named Greg Mitchell. The day Greg showed up to give an estimate, he took one look at the lake.
4: And he said he'd do it really cheap. I think he'd bring his friends out, you know, and have them play in the lake. And we said, gosh, that sounds like a deal.
0: So the night Greg finished his work, he and his friends went for a swim. Afterward, the drinking started. The Griffins joined the party in their boathouse.
6: Little did we know they would stay and drink and drink.
4: And I think they were all pretty much hooked on drugs.
6: Greg was very dramatic when he talked. Used his hands and head and almost talked like a salesperson the whole time he was saying something. He felt like, what's he selling, what's he selling? So that's how it started. You, we're just sitting at the bar, talking. He kept saying all through the evening, I've done, done something. something. Oh, Lord, I've, I've done, done something, something so, so bad. It's so, so awful. awful. Well, I'm going to find out what he's done so awful that you're not talking about.
4: Chris can get it out of you. <laughs> <laughs> it is the
6: Evening went on, he's drunk and he's putting his head down on the bar and he's Mm boo-hooing and crying and going on. I killed some
4: people.
6: They got our attention then.
4: The drunker he got, the more guilty and, and bad that he felt.
6: He said, you remember that Dr. McDonald? He talked about the children those precious little children, about how how he could have done that, he didn't know or something. He was just crazy.
4: There's no argument about what he said. The McDonald murders, we did it.
1: Welcome to True Spies.
5: My name is Everett W. Morse. Grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. Lived there all of my life, other than the time I was in military
0: service. In the early 70s, Everett Morse was a student at the University of North Carolina. He went there to study, drink a little beer, and occasionally play some golf.
5: And you had a neighbor. Yeah, Greg, uh, uh, referring to Greg Mitchell. He was a uh, relatively small build, uh, thin, blonde hair, if you will, with a moustache. Probably, I don't know, five, six, seven, somewhere along in there. Greg was probably the only person that was not in college at that time. We knew he uh, did a lot of drugs because he offered to get us drugs. And none of us did drugs. We just drank beer. One day, Greg invited Everett to his apartment. said he had a present for me, so I went over there. There was nine or 10 cats in that small apartment. I had observed guns and knives in his apartment on numerous occasions. There were pills, powders, people in and out. And there was a case of balls. And he said, Do you want them? I said, well, I don't have any money, Greg. I, you know, I'm a college kid trying to make it. He got mad and uh, I just finally started to leave and he became very, very angry to where I was uh, looking in his face and his eyes and I was not very comfortable in what I was seeing. And then he said, you take these or I'll kill you you. like I I did McDonnell. His eyes were fire burning. I didn't think anything about it to tell you the truth what he was talking about. I didn't know if he was talking about, you know, old McDonald.
0: Jeff's new lawyer, Brian O'Neill, wanted to know who Greg Mitchell was. So he dug up a photograph of Greg when he was a soldier in Vietnam.
2: He's standing here, and the other guy's standing here, human ears. These guys had, you know, taken people who had been killed in combat. Vietnamese cut their ears off and made a little string of it. That's not inconsistent with the sort of person who might get high on drugs and go ahead and kill some people with an ice pick.
0: But if Greg did it, he didn't do it alone. Jeff had described four people. Private investigator Ray Shedlick needed to find the others.
2: Ray Shedlick found witnesses who had seen a group gathered together in a diner, a group of people identical to that which Jeff described.
5: So those witnesses whom I could cooperate, they were the credible witnesses who I would use and forward their reports out to Mr.
6: I noticed uh, four hippie type people.
7: They appeared to be high on something. The black man had his arm around the white female. The males were all clean cut. He was wearing an army fatigue jacket and uh, dark civilian pants. There was a white man, uh, but I didn't get a good look at him.
0: Army fatigues and clean cut. They sounded like ex-soldiers, like Greg Mitchell. But these witnesses had also seen a woman with blonde hair wearing a memorable hat.
7: It was three young men and a woman in a floppy hat. She was wearing a floppy hat and boots. An off-white floppy brand hat, a three-quarter length vinyl coat, and clean white boots.
0: You might remember a woman from episode two, known to wear a blonde wig, a floppy hat, and boots. Her name was Elena Stokely. When she testified at Jeffrey McDonald's murder trial, she said she couldn't remember a thing.
7: If I could remember, I would say.
0: Brian O'Neill needed to talk to Elena. So he and Chedlick flew to North Carolina to meet the mystery woman in the floppy hat. Ladies
2: and gentlemen, the seatbelt sign will be switched off shortly.
0: From prison, Jeff wrote to Joe McGinnis to tell him the good news. Dear Joe,
3: I'm on edge this weekend.
8: Brian O. and the new investigator are in North Carolina. I somehow feel this trip is critical.
5: Thank you for flying with us, ladies
0: and gentlemen. Jeff's lawyer, Brian O'Neill, and private detective Ray Shedlick had spent months reinvestigating the McDonald murders trying to track down the hippie intruders Jeff said murdered his family. Now they arrived in North Carolina to meet the mystery woman, who they thought might finally confess, Helena Stokely.
2: I remember one thing. It was a gorgeous area, and she was sort of nuts. She was spacey. She seemed wary. My take on her was, she's probably exactly the same sort of person who would do this.
7: I had a floppy hat that I used to wear all the time.
0: This is the real Helena Stokely, talking about the night of the McDonald murders.
7: I had on boots that night, and before we left, before I dropped the mescaline, I was already smoking marijuana and everything. And as a joke, I put on the blonde wig that belonged to my roommate. At the time of the murders, I was involved with the satanic cult. If I went in, my part in the uh, whole thing would be initiation. I entered the house with another member of the cult. We had to struggle with the door, which is the reason I lit the candle to begin with. There were three members in there already talking to Dr. McDonald. He was on the couch.
5: What the hell are you people doing in my house?
7: I thought they were simply asking for drugs or something like that. As it turns out, it turned into violence. I said, leave him alone. Someone knocked him unconscious. After that, I went into the back bedroom. That's when I saw two other members in there. Collette was struggling with them. Started screaming something like, Why are you letting them do this to me? Something like that. There was a child laying on the bed next to her that I presumed was asleep. But she was bleeding profusely by that time. I said, let's leave her alone. But this was unnecessary. And someone called me up. Do gooder or something. I'd already been called a goody-goody two-shoes in the front living room. I went back out front, and by that time, Doctor McDonald had regained consciousness, and someone was in there beating him. I said, asked said, I just screw you, kill the pigs, hit him again, again, again." I first met her.
0: In the Haymouth section of Fayetteville, he was running with a group of motorcycle riders. This is Prince Beasley. He was a local narcotics detective at the time of the McDonald murders. He died many years ago, but we found this interview.
3: That's how I first became uh, associated with Helena. She was young, and she impressed me as being a a lonely young lady looking for attention and association with something.
0: Helena was just 17 when she became Beasley's drug informant.
3: And uh, she was uh, being initiated into uh, this satanic cult, which she called the Black Cult. She explained to me that they would go into this ritual room, they'd hang a cat up by his hind legs, and then take a knife and slit his throat. Then they would get down in this blood, they rub it all over them, using their LSD or whatever drugs, Then they would go into what they call a sex ritual. As men and women together, that's what they did. I asked her if they did humans that way. Uh, Later on, she did say that humans had been sacrificed. But she wouldn't elaborate on that.
0: Helena told Beasley about the leader of the cult, an ex-soldier just back from Vietnam.
3: She told me that if you ever stop him, don't let him get behind you. Don't ever turn your back on him.
0: He was Helena's boyfriend. Greg Mitchell. Greg Mitchell.
3: Greg was one of the most violent ones of the group.
6: He kept saying, I've done something.
4: There's no argument about what he said. The McDonald murders, we did it.
0: Brian O'Neill and Ray Shedlick now knew that Helena Stokely was connected to Greg Mitchell.
3: Yeah?
0: And Ray Shedlick was pretty excited about what they'd found. Could
3: you just, uh, first of all, it's S-H-E-D... Here
0: he is on the phone with Bob Keeler, a reporter from Newsday.
3: Okay. I came up with
8: people who, these now these are these are grown, mature, non-drinking, non-dope people
3: right. that have
8: signed affidavits of what they saw. Mm-hmm. And without a doubt, two perpetrators have been definitely identified sure. by all the witnesses. All the witnesses? All the witnesses. And these were witnesses who saw them in the vicinity of the place that night? or what? One saw them in the vicinity of the place. It's so dynamite, it's unbelievable.
0: Yes, the famous Elena Stokely. This is Dennis Rogers. Way back in 1974, just four years after the McDonald murders, he was a cub reporter for a local newspaper.
8: I was looking for a story. I had been assigned to write a big Sunday piece.
0: Rogers had heard about a woman who was telling people she was in the McDonald house the night of the murders. That woman was Helena Stokely. Rogers wanted to write about Helena, but he didn't want to use her name, so he called her Miss X.
8: That morning, I got a phone call, and this voice said, This is Miss X, and I'm going to kill you. That, That got my attention. Rogers invited Helena to the newsroom. We sat and talked for, gosh, an hour, two hours. And her story changed over time. At this point, her story was, I didn't kill anybody, but I think I might have been there. And I said, why do you think that? And she said, well, I keep having these nightmares.
7: I keep thinking I might have been there when something happened. I've been by there, driven by there, and every time I go there, I have a panic attack. And when I get near the place...
8: I just feel like I have some connection to it. I said, I tell you what, let's go out there. Let's go out to the house. And she said, okay,
0: reluctantly. Rogers drove Helena to Fort Bragg, He pulled his car to the side of the road, right in front of the McDonald House. Now, at this point,
8: there was still plywood on the windows. It was obviously not an inhabited house. And I pulled up, and I said, I've turned around. Let me look at my map.
0: Rogers rooted around in the glove box, pretending to look for a map. But the entire time, he was watching Helena. And she was sitting next to
8: me, looking around,
0: looking out the window.
8: If I recall, she was smoking a cigarette. And she was within less than halfway from here to the street from where she says she may have been involved in a triple murder. I wanted to see her have a panic attack. You know, what kind of reaction did she really have? And there was nothing, absolutely nothing. I finally said, I guess that's it. That's that must be at the house. And she looked at it and she said, I don't recognize that one. And that was when I finally knew. I don't know who did kill him, but it was not Helena Stokely. It was all bullshit.
1: Dear Chef. God, there's some amazing stuff in what I've read. No sense ranting about it here. I've got a book to put it in. Please keep me posted on the progress made by O'Neill and investigators. The ending can be altered even after the book is set in type if there is a truly important break. At this point, you can and should tell the world, 60 Minutes, Barbara Walters, and anyone and everyone else, that the book is virtually complete. By all means, hype the book and be sure in any conversations about it to get across that I have been operating with complete freedom and independence. Incidentally, or not so incidentally, the title search is finally over. The book will be called... Fatal Vision.
8: Joe, your letter was welcome news. Title, great. Hits me with a gut-wrenching impact. It also reads well when you see it typed. The right jacket should be eye-catching,
1: but I'm consumed with interest in your meaning of it. Dear Jeff, the title was finally one I chose mainly on instinct and gut feeling. I'm glad you like it. I went with one I knew would work up enthusiasm and one which could operate on many different levels, as indeed it does for you, Joe.
0: Was Joe really going to end Fatal Vision with Helena Stokely's confession? Jeff was about to find out on national television.
3: McDonald first learned of McGinnis' conclusions when I talked with him
0: in prison, and he was devastated. That's next week on Morally Indefensible. Morally Indefensible is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. This episode of Morally Indefensible was produced by Zach Hirsch and Julia Botero, with help from Ryan Swikert, Jesse Rudoy, Kevin Shepard, and Danielle Elliott. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling, and Danielle Elliott. While Sandro Santoro is our associate producer, our archive producer is Brennan Reese, Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Kenny Kusiak did the music and mix. Sound design by Kenny Kusiak and Zach Hirsch. Additional music by John Kusiak and Marmoset. Our title track is Promises by The Monophonics. Voice reenactments by Logan Stearns, Jesse Rudoy, Sam Bevitt, Gina DiNardo, Natalie Archer, Shelley Chenoy, Victoria Putman, Emmett Swikert, Ryan Swikert, and Zach Hirsch. Legal review by Linda Steinman and Jack Browning of Davis Wright Tremaine. Special thanks to Sean Twigg, Mae Ryan, Luke Malone, Brian Murphy, Joe Langford, Peter Schmuel, Diana DiCilio, Bob Stevenson, Christina Misavich, Bob Keeler, and Daryl Morris. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, find us on Instagram and Facebook at Morally Indefensible and Twitter at Morally Indef, M-O-R-A-L-L-Y-I-N-D-E-F. If you've enjoyed Morally Indefensible, Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening.